This Week in the Function Room, episode 37. This goes all the way to the top with Dr. David Robert Grimes. He's a physicist, cancer researcher, science writer and author of the award-winning The Irrational Ape, Why Flawed Logic Puts Us All at Risk. We look at the mathematics of conspiracy theories. How to tell if one most likely isn't true. We learn about a scary thing called availability heuristic. Why it's not sugar is making those children hyper at the party. And what you think when you first hear the name Freddie Starr. Dr. David Robert Grimes, first of all, welcome to the function room. Can you tell me what you do for a living, please? That, that's a loaded question. I wear, I wear several hats. So by training, um, I'm a scientist. I do mathematical modeling of different phenomena, mainly in health. So I mainly work in health research these days. And I also research health misinformation. And my other hat is I'm an author and I write popular science books and I write for different uh, news outlets like the Irish Times, the Guardian and Scientific American and that sort of stuff. So many different hats, all of them worn poorly, I'm sure. Or at a jaunty angle. Depending. Definitely jaunty. I mean, what's the point of wearing a hat otherwise? One of the things you just said there, you mentioned mathematical modelling, so my ears pricked up. Tell me where your mathematical modelling comes into your work. It kind of is, it informs the very core of it. Um, mathematics can be a tool for giving you insight into sometimes intractable seeming problems, sometimes problems that seem kind of abstract. It gives you a framework to go, if this happens, then what would happen? So that, that's my, my love of modeling. And that's why I work so much in health research these days. But obviously, it, it's it's applicable to a lot of things. So you can simplify phenomena around you and go, okay, if this happened, how would this affect this? And in my work, that is pretty much a core concept. We often want to answer questions that we can't ethically test. I, if I want to work out how how efficient a vaccine is, I can't go and infect a rake of people and go, how does that go? I'll have to kind of do some simulation first and work out if that was this infectious, how would this go? And it's uh, that was in my health, uh, under my health hat. But there's other applications too. I've done simulations of musical theory and indeed conspiracy theories, which I think we might talk about today. <laughs> The simplification is the the key thing, isn't it? Because what you're trying to do is put some sort of shape on something that seems um, an act of fate or chaotic in the non-math sense or something that simply can't be described. You're trying to describe the indescribable, are you? What you're trying to do is work out, look, if there's an event that has a low probability of occurring, but you're doing this in, in, in in a space where there's lots of, potential events every day there's lots of people they're interacting you start asking more and more questions and it's like if this happens this frequently then how often would we see this bigger event on the back of that so everything you start with is mechanistic you have you 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 have a very solid premise and then you start building it out and seeing where things go and in fact it's one of the things i love about mathematics it, it's all like logic when you're trying to work out a situation is logic, essentially. You're trying to work out, okay, if this happened, then this would happen. And you're just quantifying how often or how big or, or whatever else. And it's a very useful way of doing things, at least in the first instance, because there's um, many situations we can't just run an infinite amount of times. We have to get the best choices about parameters. And we have to sometimes infer, as, as you pointed out, the world's very random. Sometimes we're looking at the world and trying to work backwards, an inverse problem to work out, okay, well, how likely is X, Y, or Z? And that's where people like me come in uh, with our whiteboards and our lack of social skills. Indeed, you have a whiteboard behind you, which I'm always... I do, I always I'm demonstrating my lack of social skills right now. Yes, <laughs> I always... Um, it's a running trope in this thing, in this podcast, that I'm immediately curious as to what's written on the whiteboard behind my guest. Is there anything... What are you working on at the moment? Is that the life, uh, the universe, would, would and everything? You, would you believe this? Uh, the the thing scribbled on, apart from the picture of a cat, that is just just doodling. Um, the other thing there is trying to work out if I, I do a lot of investigations of scientific fraud in in the health space as well. That's another hat I wear, and we currently have a paper that we suspect is fraudulent, and that's just a quick calculation. I had to check if their result was consistent, and it's not. So yeah. um, I won't name names because we don't want to get sued. But that is that's an interesting, unfortunately. Most science is great, but there are people that will cut corners and do dodgy things. And then you have sad people like me doing meta research to try and catch the bad science. In in an instance like that, you're, the scientific fraud that you suspect, was it their headline conclusion 
that made you think, wait a second, I need to spend more time on it. Was it the person themselves? Uh, was it, for example, that the conclusion they came up with, you didn't like because it oh, that was a great question. It's a great yeah, question. It didn't, um, it didn't, um, uh, I, I, I try to it didn't dis- match your biases. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you have to be very aware of that. I, I try to be dispassionate about this stuff. I generally don't care, but um, because I came, my first work in this area was in the cancer space. I'm quite passionate about cancer related stuff. And you'll often come across papers saying X, Y, or Z causes cancer. And these get sent to me. Now, what got me into this years ago was at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing a lot of work with BBC, talking about different beliefs. And uh, remember, everyone thought 5G was causing COVID, which was a bizarre belief. But um, one of the BBC journalists sent me a paper and said, no, but there's a scientific paper that says there's a link between these things. And it was uh, my job. I very quickly realized they'd done a lot of things wrong. And yeah. I, fraud's a strong word. What I like to say is the results are inconsistent with the data, what they report, which is a fancy way of saying you're either incompetent or you've deliberately bent the numbers. But I developed something of a reputation for finding these kind of things. So often I'll read a paper and go, it's not that I care about, I, I just care the science is done correctly. Yeah. But you'll often see people starting off with the, something they want to prove. And you often have to tell people that's not how science should work. You start off looking at the evidence you have and then evaluating that. You shouldn't start with your conclusion and try to... But luckily, that leaves fingerprints. And some one of my jobs is finding those fingerprints. Uh, and I'm very dogged, and I definitely have um, caused a bad day for the, the automatic fraudsters. So that's, that's something. Good. Uh, so the approach one should take is, what are the numbers telling us, as opposed to, are the numbers telling us what I think they're telling us? Pretty much. I'm just like, I mean, if we look at this objectively... Is your conclusion supported by your data or have you done some funny things? Um, and I publish a lot of work on on tools for finding those funny things. And I work with a few teams around the world, uh, some in the States and some over in England to find Because you find out there's hallmarks and you suddenly find out there's entire areas where this is done a lot. And unfortunately, that, un, that fundamentally will long term, I feel, undermine people's trust in science if you think scientists are cutting corners. So there's a bit of, you know, self-policing of our own field to make sure that we're consistent. I don't really care what your result is as long as you can stand over it. The problem yeah. is when you can't stand over it. Um, that's my, my motivating credo. But yeah, people go in. Scientists are people. The method of science is fantastic. But scientists scientists are individual people and they're subject to the same biases and mistakes as anyone else. So we do have to sometimes check our homework to make sure we're not letting that poison the, uh, the, the chalice, so to speak. And the chalice, of course, is that if I see something written in Times New Roman with lots of citations and abstracts and it's on a PDF and I can't buy, the, I have to pay lots of money for the PDF and all that, then I'd immediately trust this is science. Therefore, whatever it says in the first page must be sciencey, and therefore I believe it. That's that's like, that's the bias I have Absolutely. with reading any scientific and, 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 uh, paper. The assumption this, that they know more than I do. Yeah, um, and there's also the, we've seen it during the pandemic I mean, scientific publishing has exploded but a lot of garbage has come out there as well because people are rushing things out. There's more predatory, this is a weird concept, predatory publishers because scientists are so dependent on getting publications to to up their career, which is totally wrong, but it's what happens. Um, There's publishers in India and China in particular who've just set up and will publish literal garbage if you pay them $300. Um, And we saw a lot of that during the pandemic. So I was really busy during the pandemic, you know, with, with questions from media outlets and from other scientists going, is this paper legit? Are these results legit? And often the answer was no. These people made a big mess with a pen and then did worse things with a calculator. Um, so, you know, we have to clean up our own house a little bit, I feel. But that's that's a rant for another day. I won't subject you to that. Uh, there's, always, there's always another episode of a podcast, definitely. <laughs> Podcasts are an infinitely expanding universe anyway, so I'm sure we can come back to it. Speaking of the pandemic, it was around that time that I kind of heard about you first and the book, The Irrational Ape, a subtitle of why flawed logic puts us all at risk and how critical thinking can save the world. Uh, always good to have save the world in, uh, in in your in your book titles as somebody who's written The Hypocrite's Cry to Saving the Planet. I just feel like, you you know, that's 80 percent of books now. Um, so at some point. You've obviously but you have a, a career working in maybe mathematical models in health and mathematical modeling then to debunk is a different area. At what point did you think can models be used to 
debunk conspiracies? Well, that it 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 actually came like a lot of great ideas from a night of too much drinking. And I was out in Florida with some of my I I um I have collaborators over in Tampa. There's a great big cancer center there, and they do a lot of maths modeling, and we work with clinicians to to work out how we can find out how tumor treat or like cancer treatments will go. So that's that's that was my my day job for the most part. And at the time, I was doing a lot of writing for, say, the Irish Times and the Guardian. And whenever I wrote a piece, no matter what it was on, I think I wrote one for the Irish Times on fluoride and another one for the Guardian on vaccines and another one on something else. And I get these all caps, furious emails saying, you're part of the conspiracy to suppress the truth. And that always amused me because I am like, I, I view myself as, 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 you know, stereotypically incompetent. Like I, I tie my shoelaces together. If, if there was a new world order, I would be the worst person because I'd immediately tell you in a podcast, hey, I heard this great secret from the lizard people. It's incredible. So I just laughed at this idea. But what I did find... Uh, unless, of course, you're a stooge. That's uh, it. And you're being a pawn. A, a yeah. real pat. They love a term patsy, don't they? Yeah. But it made me interested because I started saying, well, let's play devil's advocate. And I was saying to the lads at the, and the lads and ladies at this 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 late night session, I was like, we were, we were they were all laughing about the emails I get because they generally scientists don't get those emails, but I did. And I said, look, I said, you know, the, I realized that let's play devil's advocate. Let's assume there is a conspiracy. And this is current. Let's assume that's there. There's some finite chance that everyone involved really wants to keep it a secret. So let's get an estimate how many people you'd have to involve, how long it would have to go on for. And let's model failure. So you can do a thing in mathematics for modeling failure and you can use certain types of statistics. That I go, and let's just see how long if everything was perfect for these guys things would go horribly awry. And they all laughed and thought, ah, that's a great idea. And they all went to bed. I went back to my hotel room and realized that the kind of maths I was doing for radiation tumor interactions actually would work for this. And so by the next morning, I'd come up with a sketch and I, I picked four of the big conspiracy theories that vaccines are you know, causing harm and it's being covered up, that climate change is a hoax, the moon landings were faked, and uh, there's a secret cure for cancer. And I got these like back of the envelope numbers came down to breakfast. And I'm like, see, these wouldn't last at all. So that eventually became a paper. And, um, and, and the argument was, it's not so much to debunk it. Because I say the argument is that we have to be Socratic about it. If someone says there's a conspiracy, I go, okay, let's pretend that's true. And let's see what that would look like. Sorry, you used a phrase there. Did you say be Socratic? Uh, Socratic. About- yeah, sorry. Um, so-, so Socrates, so- the, 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 the possibly fabled father of... Um, in Greek antiquity of all logic and things like that, he would encourage, or his students report he encouraged, Socratic dialogue, which is where you ask questions back and forth and go, if that was the case, then what would happen? And you arrive at conclusions by deductive reasoning, right? Or inductive reasoning in some case. So Um, the attitude of, I'm not saying you're wrong, but... Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I do this with my students a lot. I'm like, okay, okay, but let's, let's, I go, okay, if that's true, then what would that imply? And you, you do the back and forth until eventually they go, oh yeah, Oh, yeah, that's silly. I'm like, well, it's not silly, but you're right. It's probably not consistent what you first said. And you do all that and, kind of stuff. And and also, I presume that it's something that's very comfortable in the mathematical space because it's used to prove that pi is irrational or whatever, because let's assume exactly. pi is rational and make all these assumptions. Then you should be able to express pi as a fraction of one over the other. And then you get to a point where you say that one equals zero and you go, OK, then the origin, original assumption must have been is, and, and it's a proof yeah. by contradiction, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, one of my favorite little stories when I talk about it in the Irrational Ape, because it's when I, I, I don't talk that much about math, because usually you want to scare people you talk about math. I kind of keep it a general concept. But the one I do love is back in Greek antiquity, when numbers started to become, you know, very big uh, in a formalized way, we still like use Euclid's texts and all that kind of stuff. Um, Pythagoras, him of the triangles, was actually more famous as a cult leader and a, and an advisor he just but a part of his religion was that there was sacred harmonies in nature and that, that numbers were basically divine so finding all these ratios they loved ratios in fact they were great at tuning musical instruments pythagorean tuning is a thing where you'd work out the ratio of a string whatever else all that kind of stuff um but they believed the world was full of perfect numbers and the problem is one of their followers hippasus of Mentheum, he actually proved using Pythagoras' own logic that the square root of two is irrational, that there is no perfect fraction you can get for it. And he used their logical tools to do so. And they were so enamored with them that they killed him. 
Yeah. So um, this is never, never show up your lecturers because they may actually murder you. That happens less these days. I have not yes. murdered a student yet. Um, just, <laughs> I've only threatened a, to several times. But it, it, it was pass. kind of, yeah. yeah, it is kind of funny. But you're right. Yeah, so contradictory proofs come out. And they're really important. If you get a fundamental contradiction in your logic or in your numbers, um, that tells you something. You should listen to that contradiction because it tells you somewhere in your assumptions you've made a mistake. And there's something that isn't sustainable. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. I didn't want to insult conspiracy theorists and say, haha, you're all idiots, because that's too easy to do. Um, what I want to do is say, okay, let's pretend you're right. And let's just look at this. So the way I did that was I said, every person involved in these hypothetical conspiracies is a really good secret keeper. They're a better secret keeper than the NSA. And I was able to use things like Snowden's prism links to get rough, a rough idea of, of how many tens of thousands of people you could have for how long before someone either like let the cat out of the bag accidentally or sent an email to the wrong person. This was Edward Snowden. Yeah. So he worked as an NSA contractor because again, the NSA need that. And that was Prism was the uh, the project he leaked. Now, at best, that had run for about six years. He leaked it in 2013. It had run for about six years with about 30,000 people being fully complicit. And the reason why this matters to me is and why I focus on scientific conspiracy theories, so to speak. I mean, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. But in science, you would need everyone to be fully complicit. In intelligence work, you can do compartmentalization. This is, this is a, a, for example, if we're working on a bomb project, you and I, well, firstly, we should not be allowed to do that. But yeah. if, if we were, um, you could keep things secret. You could say, look, Team Y know they have to design a detonating cap. They know nothing else. And Team B, no, they have to design a tube that holds this. And that's how the Manhattan Project and things were done. Like, there was a core people, group of people that knew everything. But a lot of the engineering stuff was done on a compartmentalized basis. And in the intelligence community, that's exactly what you do. Um, you, it's a need-to-know basis. <clears throat> and if you're a lower rank, you don't need to know. Just do the job you've been given. But in science, you need full complicity. For example, if climate change was a hoax... You couldn't accidentally have some scientists involved in it. They would need to know full well what they were doing. Yeah, you'd so you'd never get a scientist. You'd never get a scientist to. Can you just look at Greenland ice cores for? Oh, no reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you'd have to. You'd have to know if you're looking at these cores what you're looking for. Exactly, and yeah. I, and also, I mean, people. I always like kind of laugh when people say, "Oh, scientists all get together on something." If you know scientists. We can be a disagreeable bunch. It's like herding cats. Yeah. Like getting us to agree on something is actually rare. We love, also, we love disagreeing. So it's... And also jealousy, uh, resentment at somebody doing better. You'd, 100%. you'd try and discredit them. Just to go back to the analogy between, say, an intelligence project and a scientific project, just to get it right in my brain, is, is the difference between them, that say with the Manhattan Project... Um, you're not necessarily trying to discover the unknown. You're trying to make a thing at the end of it. Usually, and, yeah, exactly. Um, and so, all so, so a small number of people need to need to know the name and the size and shape and color of the thing, and the everybody else just can do bits. And you know, you know how they lot, like five people need to know where all the four hundred individual cells plug in together but with science you the thing you're trying to get to is too cloudy or nebulous is that's it, it. Am, I, I'm struggling, am i struggling there to no you're doing it you're, you're absolutely you, you've 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 elucidated a point much better than i did um science is an investigative enterprise you're constantly trying to take all available data and marshal it to test ideas but you're right on a project whether it's intelligent in the intelligence community you're usually given a directive Someone who is more informed than you or has the, the channels of power has said, I need you to keep tabs on X, Y, or Z or whatever else. And you go, well, can you tell me more? No. That wouldn't work in science because, again, it is by definition an investigative effort. So I think yeah. you, you, the making of versus the looking into a distinction you made there is absolutely okay. valid. Because occasionally I would get, um, when this paper came out, and it, it went viral when it came out, it was it, it it was kind of bizarrely huge. But there's a funny story about, I think, why. Um, I was with Oxford at the time, and I think they pushed it very hard as a funny story about why, because they were getting really bad press at the time about a statue of Cecil Rhodes. Um, okay. They're still getting bad press about that. 
And I feel like news cycle, they're like, um, someone in our office has done this weird paper of conspiracies. Push the hell out of it. So it yeah. went viral. But then, of course, every lunatic in the world decided that I was part of a conspiracy and must be taken down. So my yeah. emails were a toxic cesspit for, I'd say, about four months afterwards. Yeah. But, uh, was- and ironically, there is a small conspiracy there in that they were trying to deflect attention from another <laughs> Quite thing. possibly. Yeah. But, but, I, but that I, would I be very obvious. to that one because I just yeah, had this yeah. paper and I'm like, hey, this is cool. Yeah. Coming up in the next section, when confronted with a conspiracy theory, where should you start looking to try and figure out if it's a load of nonsense or not? So, okay, so you've got your four things of what if. It's four areas. So moon landings. J- sorry, was it JFK? Uh, no, I did well, I, I, yeah. moon landings. I did vaccines are secretly causing harm. Um, I did cancer has a cure and it's being covered up. Um, which 37% of Americans actually believe, by the way, which is yeah. shocking. And the last one I did was, is it climate change? Isn't it? It'll come back. No, to you me. have them. You have cancer, yeah, yeah, vaccine, you climate change and moon landings. So you you take them. And what is the first? So at the end of all of this, you came up with uh, an equation, uh, which are all, they're always, they're always sexy. Yeah, um, yeah. But you look at them. What is the first question when you look at a topic about which there is conspiracy theory noise. What do you do first? Um, these days, because I, I've, I've been in, I'm now a veteran, I feel. I'm very good at going, where did that come from? And what you'll find with conspiracy theories now, because um, I write about them as, I write about them for a popular audience too. So often I'm not even doing the maths. I'm just going, what's the folk history? What's the epistemic origin of that? Um, and what you'll realize is that if you cover conspiracy theories for a long time, there's nothing new under the sun. It turns out, no matter how outlandish it sounds, people aren't creative. I'll give you an example. Um, the idea that COVID was made in a lab it was really popular. You remember, still people that believe it, right? And the, even though you could argue the evidence, the, the epistemic side of it is very against that, that's not even a new conspiracy. So um, in, the, in the mid-80s, the belief that HIV-AIDS was made in a lab was not only popular in America, it was endorsed by the KGB who realized that they could push this myth in America. They didn't create it. They just encouraged people to do it. This is a very KGB tactic. Um, They had a unit called Active Measures. They would encourage this disinformation. It backfired horribly on the Soviets because AIDS was very real. And suddenly AIDS came to Russia and they had no virology work done it. So they had to use diplomatic back channels to go back to America to ask for help for their virologists. And one of the conditions of that was that they had to disown the bloody rumor they'd started. But the problem with those rumors is they never fully die. So to this day, over half of African-Americans believe that there is some merit to the expression that AIDS was man-made because their community was absolutely ravaged by this, and Reagan didn't seem to give a damn. The CDC, and this is a great story, if you read Randy Shields' book, The Band Played On, the CDC did incredible work in spite of Reagan, not because of him. Mm. And um, you can see why communities that were very badly affected by this would resent that what looked like indifference from the halls of power, because there was indifference in the halls of power to their suffering. So again, conspiracy theories often take root when people are feeling hurt, and, and sometimes justifiably so. And the conspiracy um, there was a more recognisable one, which is probably racism, um, bias against absolutely. people who were more statistically likely to be poor, have poor health care access, um, and they weren't moral objections Reagan, to so contraception. Yeah. 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 Now, there's an incredible story. The CDC did actually develop the first treatments for, for HIV AIDS rapidly. And it's an incredible story. And I always think Randy Schultz's book, The Band Played On, it's hard reading, but it's phenomenal history of HIV AIDS. But um, that... You know, they did that despite, and actually Fauci comes up a lot there. It was interesting because, you know, you suddenly realize how much Fauci did in the early days. Like, you know, oh, there's a reason you were put in charge of the COVID response. You had a a good rep in this. Um, And the other thing, again, is even that wasn't a new myth. That myth, um, that the idea that people are creating uh, plagues and pandemics is a conspiracy theory trope that comes up again and again. It goes back to the 1400s where people were saying Jews are poisoning the well. Um, it's not original. We're not original. So yeah. one of the things I do these days is I find tropes and I go, that is a borrowed trope. That trope came yeah. from this. And you can, once you get really comfortable with this, you can trace the fingerprints of them and realize that people just recombine. Very say in dumb case, ideas. Yeah, but in the case of any kind of health outcome being a conspiracy, 
tropiness is that just in the back of your mind that alerts you to it but the likelihood of something being a trope that's that can't be plugged in would that be right no i don't i don't yeah. plug that in what i usually yeah. do in this one this is this is kind of my my, my higher level investigation yeah. i usually try to find out where the main vector is so by this we can this is i, I hate social media it is the worst um as as well you know but what you can sometimes use that to do quantitatively is you can sometimes reverse engineer it to find out where, where are the biggest vectors of, of disinformation coming from. For example, during the early stages of the pandemic up till 2021, um, the Center for Counting, Countering Digital Hate found that 65% of all COVID misinformation, all of it online, was coming from just 12 people whom they um, christened the disinformation dozen. And these were some popular names you would have known, the Joseph Mercolas of this world or the Robert F. Kennedy Juniors or whatever else. But that's a huge amount of traffic. And if you go back to these people, then you can look at their canon of work and you'll often find, you know, they've, they've just they've done the same thing with something else before. They've just swapped the labels. So there is a quantitative way of doing that. Now, I always pr- think that the thing you got to be careful with in science is you're never trying to prove a negative, right? Um I can't prove that there's not an invisible unicorn who lives in your garden because like, there's no observables that I can put in that equation. Yeah. What I can show you is that there's no evidence consistent with there being an invisible unicorn living in your garden, right? Um, so a lot of the times I get, and, and the onus of burden, in this case, if you told me there's an invisible unicorn living in your garden, the onus of proof would be on you. The onus of providing evidence would be on you. But in um, for some reason, we don't do that in real life. I'll often have people tell me, really weird things i go and what's your evidence for that you go oh it's your job to prove me wrong scientist and i'm like <laughs> it's not though it's yeah. not uh, it's my job to evaluate evidence of which you have provided none so yeah. i do kind of sometimes think that we take on um what was it it was a uh, christopher hitchens razor you know that that can be asserted about evidence should be dismissed without evidence um but yeah it, it, it is for so what i do with the modeling of conspiracy theories is i actually i often do that for the benefit of conspiracy theorists yeah. So acceptance of conspiracy theory is a spectrum. It's not like a, you know, you're, you're, you're nudged. You're not just, I am a conspiracy theorist, or I'm not. You get more and more open-minded to them, and then you can be nudged further and further down the rabbit hole. I created this as a tool to say to people that maybe we're going, okay, maybe there's something to this. To say, all right, but let's pretend there is, and let's pretend everyone's in on it. Let's just see how hard that would be to do. And it turns out that no matter how good your conspirators are, they're, they're human, and the big conspiracies fall apart so quickly, even if you give them every other option in their favor. So basically, I, I gave them dials they could pull up to make max conspiracy power, and everyone's a bastard. So like this is assuming that there is a cure for cancer, say, and every scientist working in it is happy to be part of that secret. You know, yeah. there's about a, two or three million cancer researchers, at least in the world. It's a lot of people. And they're all going to be bastards. So, you dial so that's it. That's that's a key number. First of all, so you look at the so you're looking at a conspiracy theory, and do you then go right? How many people work in this are, area? Work in this area, and are deli- and would be fully complicit. So yeah, so, and that so that takes. I take all the scientist numbers. I go so this many scientists are working on this, right? Okay. And I and and then I deliberately did something else. I deliberately underestimated in the paper, because it turns out if you make the amount of people big, it, it goes back to what Benjamin Franklin said in the 1700s. He said that three men can keep a secret if two of them are dead. And there is an argument that if, if you and I were going to... Conspiracies happen all the time. I should point this out, right? Mm. But conspiracies are plots by people. Um, so if you and I decide we're going to rob a bank, that is a conspiracy. We tend to know they fall apart pretty quickly when you start involving more and more people. If you then went and told you know, your cousin, your, you'd have more and more people that would eventually say to the cops, oh... You know, they were definitely doing that. They told me, right? Yeah, I'm worried about my brother-in-law. Yeah, kind of yeah. Thing. he's up yeah. to, definitely up to some yeah. things, but a lot yeah, of balaclavas, interesting. Yeah. And indeed, <clears throat> all of the, all of the, like in terrorism or, you know, the shoot, the random shootings in America, there is so much evidence, sometimes after the fact, or a lot after the fact, from loved ones who have actual evidence of, what this person did the, and yeah. people who are bound by 30 year marriages are lifelong familial relationships and it still leaks out so okay you've got your number of scientists and what other parameters then the other, the, how do you measure their 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 leakiness that's re- like that and this goes back to 
the leakiness really, really matters. So I started saying, okay, let's look at some conspiracy theories that were exposed, right? So I took the, the Prism Snowden leaks or the big one. Like, obviously, that it's it be, that's 10 years ago. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm getting to a certain age now where 10 years ago doesn't seem that long ago. And you go, oh, whoops. I know. If you told me 10 years ago something 10 years before, it would have been like a lifetime ago. Um, uh, time is the worst conspiracy. Time is, uh, yeah. It gets us yeah. all in the end, doesn't it? Yeah. But, yeah, so that was one of the things I did. But even that, so even if we assume we're all as good as the NSA, Right, you get a number out of that. I think it was about four in a million per year. So what that means and, is and so so that's like four in a million leaks leak incidents so of pro- information. Yeah. So the 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 uh, to simplify the parameter a little bit, it it turns out that your chances of a leak per individual conspirator per year of conspiracy because it depends how long you want to maintain yeah. it. Like that's another factor that I had the model. Are you happy? Do you want this to go on indefinitely or does it only have to last a year? Because if it only has to last a year or two, that's easier. Still difficult, mm. but easier. Um, so this parameter, I, when, when I got the numbers say, out of the, the Snowden thing, they became they gave me like a number of, you have a 1 in 250,000 chance per person per year of them leaking it or messing it up. Mm. And that actually, that number seems really low, but it actually turns out it would ruin almost all conspir- big conspiracy theories quickly. Mm. So I started doing a thing called robustness analysis where I said, okay, let's say they're 10 times better than that. Let's say they're 100 times better. Mm. But the problem is when you put it into the, the, the mathematical framework, the, the, it, it doesn't really matter. You have so many people involved and that it became mm. a limiting factor. If I need to involve thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of people, it's just going to fall apart. And I remember laughing because that was very much what Benjamin Franklin had worried about then. Machiavelli, him of the prince the book back in the 1500s advising um a, a satirical text advising a prince advised against conspiracy theories for the precise same reason he basically said that it is often the case that a conspiracy theory has been expo- exposed as its inception and basically embarrasses the prince i would advise against them and i always think that you know look at america look at nixon's presidency and watergate he had 12 people. The most powerful man in the world just wanted 12 people to rob a hotel and they couldn't bloody do that right. So it turns out that numbers really matter. Mm-hmm. So if you and I want to get away with something, we probably can. But if we want to involve a few more people, every person, it literally is exponential. Every person we add increases our risk of failure exponentially. And this is why intelligent agencies will limit who needs to know on different levels. They are trying to compartmentalize the knowledge. But that doesn't work for science, which is why I, I, I strictly kept it for science. I had um, Jeremy Paxman show at the time after his paper came out, wanting me to come on and talk about the JFK assassination. And I, I had to tell them, I don't know how many people, uh, how to put an estimate in the number of how many people would be involved. Yeah, you could use, he said, but could you use the mathematics? I said, yeah, you could, but you'd need a number. And because your estimate is going to be made up, that that's just fan fiction. I'm not going to not going to do that so i didn't go on paxman that time because that's what they wanted me to say but there you go i couldn't do it um yeah but yeah you could use the same framework if you knew all about the numbers but the thing is you don't so and and so say with the cancer one you got your number of people they you assume that they're a hundred times as circumspect as the nsa a hundred times more discreet and you still end up with scientist spies which is incredible it wouldn't make sense (laughs) So you end up say let's let's say two million of them. Did, how long would that conspiracy theory fall over? Is it like a year or so? Absolute best case scenario. So the the way the curves of failure look when you do failure analysis is it you won't get an exact number that says it's going to fail here. I said when is it a ninety five percent chance that it will have failed by a time? It won't tell you the exact time. So you get the cumulative risk. All of them came out, and no matter what size of them, once they were over a few thousand you got about three years best case scenario absolute best case scenario everyone is totally on board of keeping this a secret um you're looking at about three years and then i did later on the paper i simulated okay what if you wanted to keep a secret and the kind of groups that you could keep secret for more than say 10 years you had to limit yourself down to a handful of people a handful um so it's it's not that conspiracies don't happen they do again if we plan to rob a bank that's a conspiracy it's that these overarching massive 
conspiracies that people willingly believe in are just incredibly unlikely to 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 thrive uh, and that's the point i was making so this was designed as an educational tool for people that are and it, it is used that way which i am happy to hear that oftentimes people will particularly younger students who are kind of wondering about you know should they trust society the government whatever else um, I know educators have written to me saying I'm using this at my students to allow them to simulate this stuff. And when they see it, they go, oh, yeah. Yeah, OK, you know what? That's not a great explanation because that's the really crucial thing about conspiracy theories. They give you an illusion of understanding, an illusion of explanation. But that veneer of insight is illusory and it actually leads us down, you know, worse and worse paths. So I think it I mean, I didn't do this to 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 to, to castigate conspiracy theorists i did it because i think there's a useful educational tool under there and even though i get a lot of hate mail for it i'm still delighted that it is used as an educational tool because that's what it was designed for devil's advocate and that's socratic that to me is good science teaching good science understanding don't dismiss things out of hand and go that's all stupid even though you sometimes want to go okay if that was true it would imply x y and z are x y and z likely and then if you can show people that's the logical consequence of their belief you can often change that belief yeah. so that's and that's the whole point of the irrational ape i'm like how how do we stop being well we don't say you don't dismiss it because then people go oh you're covering it up no we say, well, let's in, embrace it and it turns out that it still wouldn't work so let's do something else can you apply the model and have you applied the model to actual conspiracies uh which became revealed and did their revelation time match your own 95% confidence that the, the thing would have fallen over? It did. It did. Now, there's a big caveat to that. The model was trained. I, trained is a wrong word for this. It implies AI. But um, it was parameterized based on some of these exposed conspiracies. Um, but what I kept finding is that I wanted to make a devil's advocate model that was the very best for conspiracy theorists, right? That everything going for them. And using real conspiracies, it just, it, it didn't really work. Like they were exposed so quickly that, and historically that tends, tends to be what happens. But I didn't think that was giving them a fighting chance. So in the methods, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make these people 10 times better than we have any data to suppose they are, or a hundred times better. And even then it just didn't work. And that was okay because I wasn't trying to find the exact number because I think it'll vary by conspiracy theory. I was trying to find a range of numbers that are realistic for human beings and show that even with the most optimistic assessment, you know, it, it'd be like this. If I imagine the average strength of, 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 of a man lifting something and I work out what that is, but I can't. And then I multiply that by 10 to show that a man can't lift up a house all I want to show is that the, a single man lifting an entire house is unlikely. Um, so I'm okay to overamp the parameter to show I still couldn't get anywhere near it. And, and that's kind of what the same logic was here. I was like, look, I can't get an exact number, but I can give you 10 times what a realistic number is and see if it still works or a hundred times. And it, it just didn't. It was, it was limited by the fact that every person you add to the conspiracy, every person is a new mode of failure waiting to happen. It's like every person in your life is a new person just waiting to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> and it's just, it, it, but it, it shows the wisdom of a Franklin or a Machiavelli back in the day. Big conspiracy is hard to do. And you see it with criminal conspiracies. You have three or four people decide to, to rob something and then one of them turns on the other two and suddenly the whole thing's done. Scientists are a disagreeable bunch by nature. So trying to get them all to agree on something is like herding cats. Meow. Saucer of milk there for Dr. Grimes. Coming up in the final section... We talk about what happens when you're looking for conspiracy theories, what you're missing that's hiding in plain sight, plus the scary world of the availability heuristic and those kids and sugar at parties. Does the investigation of conspiracy reveal other conspiracies hidden underneath that were the real conspiracy? That basically when you're barking up the wrong tree, do you spot something nestling in the branches of a nearby tree? Has that ever... There has, I don't know whether that'll come out of your mats, but... No, um, yeah, you're right. So I, 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 I love this. I, I write about this in The Irrational Ape because it's one of my, my favorite stories. Sometimes conspiracy theorists are unwilling dupes for an actual conspiracy of which they don't seem to notice. 
uh, if we use conspiracy in a loose term. And let me give you the example. Um, one of the things I write about a lot in, in the Irrational Ape, and they they fascinate me, were a a, a Soviet um, counterintelligence unit called Active Measures, and part of Section B of the KGB. And their job was to basically sow discord around the world to, to put out propaganda. This is why Russia are so good at it today. They've had a propaganda department since 1923. Uh, they, <laughs> they have really mastered the art of disinformatia, disinformation. And what these guys did was they would exploit weaknesses in enemy nations and they would, they would amp their money in there. So this is what, um, and one of the great examples is you've seen Dr. Strangelove, right? The water fluoridation, sapping our manly essences, right? That's a conspiracy theory that, that water fluoridation was a sinister ploy that started in the 1940s. And the Russians got a, their spies said, look, there's, there's these. And what the Russians did was like, okay, give them money. Give them money so they can print more stuff, make donations. So you had these anti-fluoride groups who were grassroots Americans, but they were being funded by secret Russian money to go and propagate this further. The same with them, the JFK assassination. The Soviets invested a huge amount of money in amplifying books on this. Now, they didn't make the conspiracy theory. They just went and said, oh, that's good. Um, the HIV AIDS one we talked about earlier on. So what I find funny there is in this case, is a lot of the conspiracy theorists who were the paranoid individuals writing these books were unaware that the money being put up for them to publish their memoirs or to do their talking things was coming from a source that wanted to create a plot. Uh, and it happened during COVID as well. There's a reason why so much COVID disinformation came from Russia and why people got a lot of traction coming out with nonsense at the time because it was beneficial for Russia to spread that kind of stuff, to cause that discord, to have those internal divisions. So they kind of became useful idiots of a real plot uh, without any perception that they were in that plot. So I, I think that's kind of wonderful. There's something kind of wonderful about that. If if you're looking at something now, if the average person is looking at uh, something that's either it hasn't been maybe mentioned or codified as a conspiracy yet, but they're curious about is that true or not? What is the in the absence say of mathematical models? And by the way, I must get you to actually list out the equation for me as well too, in all its in all its glory. Sure. Um, but before we come to that, what should I ask? Do I ask who benefits? Or do I go back to how many people are involved? What's their leakiness? You know, is there a is this a is this something that's similar to something that happened before? That, that's a great question. And what I would say is, you don't even have to start with the maths because I, 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 in fact, you rarely have to get in there. That that that's on extreme edge. So this is a concept that I'm big on. Uh, that is information hygiene, right? Yeah. You're exposed. Someone comes up and tells you about this conspiracy theory, right? With this idea that maybe you're, you've, you've not heard before. And I would have a series of questions that I would ask to just give myself a rough gauge of, do I rate this as gold star information or is this big red flag information, right? So kind of rating system. I don't know why I have stars and flags in my rating system, but let's say a veracity meter. So the very first thing I go is, that's interesting. Where did you hear that? What's, what's your source, right? And if a source was the New York Times... That's probably okay. If the source was your racist uncle's Facebook page, this may be less so, right? The next thing I go is, okay, um, that's so fascinating. I go, is there any, is there other places reporting on this? So what you want to do is see if this is fringe or if this is, and, and what these outlets are. So one part is evaluating the information source. You're like, is that, you know, is this from a conspiracy theory website or is this on bbc.com? They're going to have different levels, right? The next thing I would say is, what are alternative explanations for what you've just described? So let's say I observe a pandemic breaking out in China again. Let's say that happens. Um, if someone is jumping straight to conspiracy, I go, yeah, but what's the alternative explanation that a naturally arising pandemic is happening? Well, that's happened before. So, you know, so I, I'd ask, so kind of just every step of the process going, okay, before I accept this, I'm going to ask a few other, other levels. And then I would, sometimes go to people who are subject experts. I mean, I do it too. I mean, I know a fair bit about conspiracy theories at this stage, but if it's on a field that is not my own, I will often go to someone who is an expert in that field and go, just, am I, and they'll often roll their eyes and go, oh, that's a well-known trope in our field. Don't, don't pay any attention to that. So it is good to get independent validation. 
But what I would always suggest is that we treat information as potentially pathogenic. People say fake news all the time, very Trumpian, fake news. But what I much prefer is the real term, which is viral propaganda. And the reason I like that term is because it captures the pathogenic essence of conspiracy theories, of disinformation, that we can be infected by them and we can infect others in turn. And during the beginning of the pandemic, we were all wearing our PPE and we had all our protective stuff. That's how we should treat information. Before we embrace it, we're going to just just check it and just check that it's it's legit before we commit ourselves to it and potentially spread it to others, get infected or infected by. The other thing I would always warn people is that almost all conspiracy theories and indeed disinformation, the most single powerful predictor of whether they go viral or not, again, using that, that terminology, is whether they induce outrage, whether they make you disgusted or fearful or angry. If information seems to be making you very angry, right? Um, just be mindful. Could be a bit dodgy. Doesn't mean straight off the bat it is dodgy, but it's it's the same reason. Like it, it, It's like bad, a lot of, for example, if we are in a room and 10 people say something nice about you and one person saying something horrible about you, people tend to listen to the horrible part. Um, and that's how humans work. We, we're gossiply, we're, we're sometimes malicious, we're whatever else. And people who spread disinformation, conspiracy theory, know that too. They know no one's going to do a conspiracy theory where, where Joe Biden is dressing up as Santa and giving people gifts at Christmas, something heartwarming. There's no heartwarming conspiracy theories. They're all, everyone's a bastard out to get you. And there's a reason for that too. What is it about us that wants to believe conspiracy theories and how many of us are likely to believe them? And is it the same proportion of the population in any era will be the early adopters of a conspiracy theory? That's a really, really insightful question. I'll try to give you a fair answer. Uh, and I'll try to do it short and with brevity. Let's see if we can do this. All right. The, the, the first thing is we're all potentially susceptible to them. And particularly if they chime with our pre-existing biases and prejudices, right? If we don't like something and then someone says, oh, there's actually a conspiracy with those people. We're like, those bastards. I always knew it, right? So we've got to be careful of that. Uh, but the other thing is about a quarter to a third of a population um, have a tendency towards intuitive thinking and intuitive thinking is very strongly associated with conspiracy theory acceptance it's it's the opposite of analytic thinking it's where you where you go in your feelings and your gut and your gut as the old joke is has shit for brains yeah your, your gut doesn't really help you with complicated problems it helps you with simple problems maybe um so that relies on intuitive thinking it stayed relatively consistent throughout history but there is a caveat to that I'll, yeah, I'll get that now so we know about a quarter to a third of the population highly susceptible but everyone potentially susceptible right um and we know that's been fairly consistent the caveat now is social media exposure right years ago if i went down to the pub and i said um i believe you know obama is hiding the immigrants in cages or whatever else whatever nonsense came out there would be enough people around me to socially check me and go, yeah, you're wrong there. That's really dumb, right? And I would get what's called social a social feedback telling me my idea was probably not good, right? And that might be something that keeps it in check. Online, I can go out and say the most outlandish, terrible things, and I will find an entire community of people that not only agree with me, but go further than me. And that's reinforcing, that's polarizing. So that social check that we often do on our ideas, we, we used to like, you know, is this a good shirt, whatever. Um, we now just find our echo chamber of people telling us, yeah, yeah, but it's even worse than that. And that's a problem. So the numbers have been consistent throughout history, but social media has changed it. And also there's another thing that is a problem. And we, we, we haven't quantified this yet, but it's a big problem somehow. Our, our preliminary data suggests it would be anyway. There's availability heuristic. And there's a thing called illusory truth phenomena. And this is terrifying. Constant exposure to a falsehood, even if we know it on an intellectual level to be false, primes us to implicitly accept it. Even if you asked us that, oh, well, that's obviously not true, we can still end up believing it. That's, that's terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> it's like yeah. someone hacking your brain. And yet that's exactly what conspiracy theory and disinformation can do to us. So you need to be wary of that one. And that's inbuilt in the brain, though, that heuristic thing you're talking about. It's because it's, it's quick information processing. If I can quickly recall something, right, 
and it's there in my database and it's easier to recall, my brain goes, yeah, that must be, I'm going to weigh that information better. And your mental filing system sometimes forgets the other caveat, which uh, that's also, it's, it's false. They remember the information, but not the label that says that's not true. So to your brain, just, yeah, it's all true, which so is terrifying. Ex- yeah, so we're exposed to far more nonsense than before because of the kind of, and the nature in which we're exposed to it is just headlines, soundbite, doom scrolling, or whatever, whatever. We're taking in all this information, whereas before we were looking at the farmyard implements or the yeah. the lathe that we worked on in a factory or even the endless typing we did in a typing pool. Our brain just processed lots of dull stuff at a time, whereas now we're getting sensational, outrage-inducing headlines that we know are wrong, but you're saying it's being filed in under maybe. Yeah, pretty brain, much. And even if we file them under wrong, our brain has a fantastic capacity to erase the labeling and go, I just remember the information. And I'll give you a, a comedy example if you want. If you say Freddie Starr to most people who are, people start thinking of hamsters. Yeah. Because <laughs> your brain has co-indexed those things. And now I never, I was I was slightly too young to be in the, the era of Freddie Starr. But I was just about old enough to still hear those jokes, and therefore that's now indexed in my head. Uh, and it's 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 why, by the way, it's why gossip and rumors are so so powerful, uh, malicious as a force, because that's what people do. They put the labeling there, and the whole indexing of true or false, unless you're actively working on that labeling system, will erode. And by constant repetition of a falsehood, you start to accept it. I, for example, know that sugar does not make children hyperactive. There's tons of data. That sugar does not make children hyperactive. Parents who think their children have had sugar report them as being hyperactive. Even though I know that is absolutely true and I can cite you all the studies, I will still look at my niece and when she's mad, oh, she's had too much sugar. I am a victim of illusory truth. And I have to stop myself and go, hang on a sec. That's not true. But I'll still say it. My brain will still do it because (laughs) it is so often said, that I some level I believe it, even though I know it to be false. Your brain is very hackable. That's terrifying. Okay, I mean, let's spend an hour. Te- Can you explain why my children are running around like that after the party? So let's let's uh, let's turn well, this into well, a parenting actually, podcast. Actually, you've hit something on the nail there. Why yeah. do people believe in conspiracies? Another thing they give us is a thing called epistemic certainty. Right? Conspiracy theories give you a story, a nice, neat story, and no matter how convoluted they seem, they're always us versus them us noble few versus the big bad that's really reassuring because life unfortunately is very rarely like narrative fiction well maybe that's a good thing if you read game of thrones or something but life is mainly full of random events and competing forces and you know happenstance and, and randomness that can make us very uncomfortable but conspiracy theories give you a sense of well-being they give you a sense of i understand what's going on and that's why they're particularly attractive to people that feel powerless because they okay. give you this veneer of understanding. My counterpoint to that is that that is, is an illusory understanding and it's often actively harmful because conspiracy theories also mean never having to say you're wrong and they almost always end up blaming someone. In history, yeah. it was people blaming the Jews or blaming the Freemasons or whatever else. But you'll often see conspiracy theories single out a people or a person or a subtype of people for something really odious that they probably don't have responsibility for and can turn into hatred or vectors of hatred very quickly. And in the case of a children's party, whoever gave those children all that cake. And it's usually me as the fun uncle, I said. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, Whereas maybe it could be a number of complex reasons why they're all running around like that, including our own failures as parents as well. Well, Also, kids uh, get excited. That's interesting, the sugar one. It's usually because parents self-reported. They did experiments giving kids placebo sugar turns out kids see other kids and they all just go ballistic so um, and 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 so the associate is correct it's the cause is wrong okay all right um i I might just edit the podcast down to those three minutes that's perfect uh, i can be uh, a parenting podcast now like you know yeah yeah, perfect (laughs) yeah tell me this last one uh what is the do you have some nice equations and nice greek symbols i do i do i do love uh, how to to debunk it just for the people who love me, that me, kind me, of thing let me see it um there there was a few variants of it in the paper let me just pull it up uh, plus one on the viability of conspiratorial beliefs yes so um the fancy greek symbols uh, the simplest one the simplest form of the equation 
well, the, the, the one I, I use in the paper, is the failure uh, probability at unit time is 1 minus e to the minus t times phi, which is the Greek symbol phi. And phi is equal to 1 minus, in brackets, 1 minus p to the power of n to the power of t. That looks wow. really messy, but all that's yeah. telling you, and I, I, I break that down, is your phi parameter is telling you about the number of people you have involved and the probability per unit person of failure. So it's, it's just encapsulating all that. And that gives you what is your chance of failure per unit time, your unit hazard. And then you're just multiplied by, by T. How long are you trying to make this last for? So you have per unit time failure by time. So something per unit time by time is just is unitless. And you're just multiplying it out. And it's because it's exponential. It's 1 minus E to the minus E. Oh, Every, it, love it. it, it yeah, yeah. It, it, well, it just means that everything looks like a curve and it, it very quickly falls apart. And this is why no matter what I did with the parameters, I was trying to be good to the hypothetical conspiracy theorist. I'm like, what's the best case scenario for you? The best case scenario is still you're not going to get very far with this. And I think that's the take home. If you want to yeah. commit some um, nefarious act, limit it to a few of your best buddies. Yeah. We shouldn't put I, it on a I, podcast, though. That would be a terrible well, idea. If I put it on a maths-based podcast, that does limit the number of people who are aware. Yeah, we'll just get the number the file audience conspiracy. really, really angry about it. <laughs> yeah, or the uh, or number blocks. Uh, the people who watch the uh, the the Stone students in the afternoon who watch Number Blocks on Netflix, the BBC number um, number show for children, which is brilliant, by the way. I I would highly recommend it. They represent. Should you be 13. stoned? Should be stoned at the time, or can you do this? Can you do this? Uh, well, if you feel if you feel like you're a prime number in a world full of composite numbers, I feel like it's, it's the show for you because thirteen comes across as a little bit lonely and feeling they're different and unique. Well, so we're, we're currently a, on episode thirty-seven, according to the title here, which is a nice prime number embedded between two other ones. So I'll take that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a special one, isn't it? I yeah. do like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep working out when 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 I'm getting the age now where I work out when's my next prime birthday. And my next okay. prime birthday is in three years. Three years, yeah. I got, I got a while. Okay, mine is uh, forty-seven. So forty-seven yeah, prime, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and forty. So forty-seven and forty-three, uh, nicely, um, nicely symmetrical in that fifth decade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a equal yeah, you, distance from the from the, the zeros. When you when you start off early, there's loads of primes, and they get. I, I also now start telling people when they have squared or cubed birthdays. Um, friend of mine turned twenty seven a few weeks ago. I said, "Your I go, your next cubed birthday won't be till you're sixty four And they're like, "Stop yeah. telling me this!" I'm like, "I'm just like, yeah, no. yeah." And uh, unlikely to see the one after that. Yeah. yeah. Well, my next Feeling squared that, birthday fe- is forty nine. I mean, uh, thirty six is already gone. Yeah. So <laughs> well, that's kind of harrowing. The idea that when you get to sixty four, you know you've reached your last cubed birthday. Uh, in terms of integers, anyway, I think isn't it? Well, somewhere, I mean, maybe it, it, somewhere. I think the world four. record is one hundred twenty two. We want someone who lives to one hundred twenty five, and then they've hit yeah. another one. Yeah, exactly. You're right, though. Okay. As long as you don't do it integers, every birthday is a cubed birthday. As long as you're happy well, with the rational are. roots of numbers, yeah. that's fine. Um, every every birthday is a cubed birthday, and every every day is a school day. Uh, I think we leave it at that. Uh, David Robert Grimes, thanks so much for uh, talking about that thing you wrote all those years ago. Uh, um, yeah. What are you working on now, by the way? Uh, so I am. Uh, right now, I'm working on a Scientific American piece that I'm over deadline on, on, um, on why court, science in courtrooms is often abused. But I'm writing my second book, um, which is uh, still, I just came back from my agents in London yesterday. So we're, we'll have the fun of all the pitching and all that jazz is happening now. So I won't get ahead of myself, but that's about a third written now. Okay. And I just had a new uh, Korean release of my book, The Rational Ape. So it's been translated to a few random languages. In America, they call it good thinking. Okay. And I keep getting asked why. And then I had to point out that 43% of Americans don't believe in evolution. So I think that okay. the publishers over there figured that calling something the irrational ape would yeah. really confuse that demographic. Um, let's, uh, let's not meet trouble halfway yeah, that's with that it. book title. Um, and yeah. as usual, what I'm doing is as little as possible to get by. And that's pretty much okay. how we should always do things. The classic portfolio career. Okay. Thanks so much for coming into the function room. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. David Robert Grimes there. His book came out in about 2019. It's called The Irrational Ape. My book came out last year. It's called Climate Warrior and makes the perfect stocking filler if your stockings are roughly cuboid. Anyway, that's it from the function room for this week. 
Please like, share, rate, review, etc., etc., on all available podcast platforms. You can find me at Colm O'Regan on Twitter, at Colm O'Regan.something by something on Blue Sky, and Colm O'Regan Writer on Instagram, and the podcast at Function Room Pod. For now, goodbye.